we actually have to discuss it. In the US, it's like we're pretending there's this like lake in the middle, there's poison in the lake, and we just like keep walking around it and pretending that it's like not seeping into the ground. And I don't know when people here are gonna be willing to actually like discuss these things. episode of 2021, I just wanted to say thank you for all the support I've received so far. It means a lot to me and I can't wait for you to hear all the amazing episodes I have lined up for the new year. Now if you're new to the podcast, I'm Rebecca Walcott and this is Visionaries. Each episode I interview world-class changemakers to find out their recipes for success so you don't have to. I make sure to mix in some fun so you can learn, get inspired and laugh along the way. Now, today's episode is a true reflection of how 2020 has impacted us all. I open up about my own struggles with anxiety and discuss some really crucial topics including the Biden transition, COVID, and mental health with author, human rights activist, and public speaker, Mungi Engomani. Mungi spills how she got her book in the hands of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, why she believes her struggle with anxiety should be a part of her resume, and how her grandfather, Desmond Tutu's legacy, has impacted her journey. She also addresses the similarities between the fight against apartheid and today's activism in the United States and beyond with the Black Lives Matter movement. It's a powerful episode that I can't wait to share with you as we chat about some uncomfortable truths and divulge in some guilty pleasures. So let's get started. I am so impressed by everything that you've done and I'm glad that I have you on actually because I'm a huge fan of your podcast, Everyday Ubuntu, and every time you have a guest on, one of the first questions you ask them is, your resume is not a full explanation of who you are as a person, what is missing from your resume that people should know about you? And I would like to flip that question onto you and ask it to you. What's missing is I think, you'd have to ask my friends, but I think I'm a pretty good friend And that's pretty important to me because I've closed my circle over the last few years. And also, I think from the outside, everything looks really put together. But honestly, what helped me realize that like, "Eh, it's not the best is, I don't know if you listened to my second or third episode with Casey Crown, where she talked about anxiety and like the ways that we deal with it. And she was like, some of us like go over control. And I think what's missing on my resume is like, everything looks really good on paper because I have anxiety where I'm like in control of everything, or at least I think I am. And, you know, I think we talk about anxiety, but it can be like debilitating and it's not cute to like think that you can control everything because you can't control anything at all. And so that is something that I think I'm probably going to spend the rest of my life working on and like maybe should be on my resume because I think that's like a, a big battle that a lot of people have that is still kind of a bit taboo to talk about. I have also realized that I also suffer from a lot of anxiety with just everyday little things. I've never really said this out loud, but I've realized it is turning into OCD where I would be obsessed with turning off a light two or three times. It sounds odd. The ritual. Yeah. I've, I I don't know if it's also quarantine inducing it, but, but for me, I tend to feel like I'm so caught up in this cycle of work because you can't necessarily turn it off that you kind of get caught up. And now I'm actually getting... And I don't actually want to self-diagnose any of this. This is just me saying that I have OCD tendencies sometimes that I think are manifested because of my anxiety. 
I mean, it's it's the rituals. That's when I was like, ah, okay, this is a problem. And they say like, if the rituals start to make you late for things or like affect you in super negative ways that other people realize, then that's when it's like you got to do something. So it's like, yeah, with the light switch, I'm like, if I do it three times, this person won't die. And it's like, what the hell are you talking about? That's so crazy. <laughs> you do that too. No, seriously, I was doing that before bed for months and I don't even think Joshua my boyfriend who I live with now realized it and I would do it quickly so that he wouldn't like start realizing but I had to do it or like making sure that the tap is off so like the water doesn't run all night it's just like weird shit like and that and flood your apartment yeah oh my god no do you think that is I mean why not we can't really diagnose this stuff yeah. but do, isn't that a relation to anxiety too is just this sort of like compulsiveness to focus on these things yeah anxiety can manifest as like the OCD um and I mean I've like I've had great therapists that I've like talked to about this I wouldn't say worked through because obviously it's still an issue but yes it's like you finding anything that you can control because clearly like deep down in your subconscious you know that you have zero control over most things and so yeah quarantine has been I think a time for like everyone's to sort of like just come out because we would, all we have control over is like what we're doing in our home. I think at the beginning of quarantine, like you had the Tiger King and you had the, all that random, all those random trends that people were doing and we're like, oh, this is fun. We're at home. We just get to watch TV. And six months in, you're like, okay, this sucks. I have no interaction with people. It definitely switched, I think. And that was when I realized, okay, I need to start doing more things to me that I think will make me happy and busy so that I'm not caught in this cycle that I see other people getting into because it's, it's for people who are taking the pandemic seriously, it is a very very lonely thing and I think a lot of people have suffered mentally because of that and so I think you know it's it's a crazy crazy year but going off of that onto a more positive note (laughs) so I realized that we have actually a lot of a few more things in common that I really internalize and your family has this huge legacy your grandmother your mother and of course your grandfather Desmond Tutu and my grandfather also won a Nobel Prize and he's a really big public figure so there are some added pressures I think that maybe our family doesn't put on us but maybe we put on ourselves. Did you feel any pressures to become successful in the footsteps of your grandfather's legacy or was that something that you put on yourself? I think it was more that I put on myself like you said. Um, I think my family was like you know kids let kids be kids and grow up do well in school and of course like you get accolades for doing well and gifts and things but it wasn't like the end-all be-all if I didn't do well you know I wasn't like shamed for it I think it was more that everyone in my family clearly was achieving like my mother my grandfather my aunts and so of course naturally I'm like well I have to do the same and I think The pressure that I put on was like, am I getting these things like opportunities because I'm actually super smart and I work hard or am I getting them because this person somehow knows who my grandfather is, even though I haven't told them. And that is like where the added pressure came. And I don't think it's something that I like dealt with properly until the book was about to come out. I honestly like did not realize that I was saying to the world, by the way, this is my grandfather when I was writing the book. And then... It came out and I was like, shit. Now, like. Because he wrote your forward, right? Yeah. He wrote the forward. And even when we were like negotiating 
with my team about the book, I made a lot of rules. I was like, there's not going to be a picture of him in the book. The book is not going to be strictly about him. Like this book is about Ubuntu. And, and even then I still didn't realize once the book came out, it was going to be like, oh, granddaughter of, which is something I like tried to avoid my whole life because my mother is a public speaker. And every time she got introduced, she was introduced as the daughter of, and I like just really didn't like it. Because I'm like, my mom is so amazing. She's not just the daughter of someone. She like has her own, you know, accolades and things that she's done. And so I think it's the pressure I put on myself because I just didn't believe that people wanted certain things for me. I, I think I thought they wanted him or like some connection to him. And like, yes, there will always be those people. But at the end of the day, like people do, you know, want you and the things that you offer. So in terms of the book itself, you know, did you have a WTF moment? Because I know it was an idea that was pitched to you that you didn't actually say, okay, today I'm deciding I'm writing a book. Yeah. So what was that moment like when you actually committed to it? And then how did you come up with the entire concept of Everyday Ubuntu? So I think the moment where I got an email from my agent and they said he said that like the, the publisher was going to buy it. And so we were like going into contract I was like, oh, okay. So they're literally, I was like, wait, are you sure they want to buy a book from me? Like I read read what I wrote, like it's not that amazing. So that was like, it was like an imposter syndrome moment, which I feel like probably everyone has when it comes to books, unless you're like this great novelist that is like so used to it. I am such a geek. I cannot bring up the book without bringing up the fact that you got Meghan Markle, Prince Harry, and baby Archie Archie to be caught on camera with holding your book. So can you tell me how the hell that happened? Because I saw it on social media and I was like, I'm going to have to ask her this one day. I had heard through the family grapevine that when Harry and Meghan were in South Africa, because we all knew about their trip to the continent, but when they were there, they're going to see my grandfather. Of course, my grandfather like does not share that with any of the grandkids. He meets people and it's like, whatever. And I'm like, no, bro, we need to share this information. Oh, it's like an afterthought. He's like, oh, I met X, Y, and Z. And you're like, oh, it would have yeah. been nice if you told me. Like, I met Beyonce, did not know how to say her name, <laughs> does not think about it. So I think my cousin told me about it. And I was like, all right, I'm sending you all these books and you need to get them a book. And so my aunt was with my grandfather that day. And the weirdest thing was the day before, Megan had made a speech about Ubuntu. She was like at some girl's school and she was speaking and she spoke about Ubuntu. And the next day they go to the office and they're meeting, they're having tea. And my aunt runs this organization, Tutu Desk. So I think she gave them some Tutu Desks, but then she also gave them the book and just like somehow got it those two pictures with them. Then she sent them to me at 5 a.m. because she didn't say anything like, okay, we got the books in our hands, nothing. And my mom and I were flying to Barbados and we get a text at 5 a.m. and it's a picture of them with the book. And my mom is screaming. And it's, I'm like, mom, it's 5 a.m. Like you're gonna scare the white people. You need to be quiet. Um, (laughs) But literally I like didn't know what to do. So then we had champagne at like 9 a.m. I mean, I would have just like, cry did they end up reading it or was it just that they you gave it to them and then it kind of you weren't able to follow up I hope they read it I signed it to Megan um because I thought that she should have it um but like we can can totally send Harry his own copy if he wants (laughs) um so I don't know like maybe one day we'll find out if they read it (laughs) 
Okay, so before we get to the rapid fire questions, I just wanted to ask you, you know, what is your recipe for success? I think having a sense of self, like a strong sense of self. And that doesn't mean you don't have like your doubts and your bad days and, you know, your sad days. But it means that like when it comes down to the tough stuff, you're like, okay, I know myself. I know how to handle this. And usually the hard things are the right things. And this is how I'm going to handle it. And being able to have a close circle of people that you can lean on. If I didn't have my mom and my partner to like bounce things off of, I would not have my sense of self because they help reinforce it. Because there are days when other people know you better than you know yourself. And so you need that reinforcement. And so I think it's like being able to find those people that you can always lean on. Just give into it. Like you're not, you're not the only person that cares about you. And you know, there are all those like weird mantras where it's like, you're the only one looking out for you. And it's like, all right, that's not true. Like let's, let's add a little nuance to that. to a little rapid fire question round so crazy questions you answer them as quickly as possible are you ready i don't know how good i'm at this okay let's try (laughs) okay so you're at the the first one is like so you it's fine you're at your favorite ball what drink are you ordering um either a champagne or a ranch water what's your biggest 2020 life hack sleep What's your biggest pet peeve? I think I have two. When people say, just playing devil's advocate here, like shut up, the devil has never and will never need an advocate. I hate that. And also people who like refuse to like have nuance in their conversations and like what about isms and things like, like just their life is complicated. So acknowledge it. What's your favorite emoji to text? Oh my God, that weird face. It's new. It's like the eye is like quivering and the mouth is like weird. <laughs> it like looks like someone's like about to pass out. It's I love it. Very twenty twenty. It's how I feel all the time. And lastly, what's one moment in your life that you wish you could relive? Oh, one moment in my life I wish I could relive. Honestly, anytime I've had a really good nap, like you know when you wake up from a nap that was so good and you're like, damn, I'm never gonna feel that again. I can't nap. Oh. No one really knows this, but I'm, I am I can't nap. Like, when I was young, I used to be able to. But if I were to try, like, if I were to have the entire day to dedicate to trying to take a nap, I would not be able to. Sorry. That would be the moment, but I feel, I'm sorry that you can't nap. Like, I'm not going to rub it in your face or anything. <laughs> no, it's fine. No, it's fine. I know, I know, I know, I know. I suck. So let's switch gears a little bit and go back into the past. In 1995, Nelson Mandela appointed your grandfather, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, as head of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, a commission to investigate crimes committed by all sides during the apartheid. From your own lived experiences in America this year, do you see some similarities between the fight against apartheid and the ongoing fight against racial injustice in the U.S.? So similarities, of course, in the way that we treat people of color as less than in the same way that the apartheid regime did. But I think there are like grave differences because, well, I guess 
obviously the end of apartheid there then become grave differences one major difference though is that like the black south africans were the majority not the minority and so that's something that we're like working against here like we are the minority and so i think it it will be more difficult what's difficult about comparing them is that after apartheid ended they obviously had the trc and everything was sort of put out there you know there are critics of the trc um it didn't go far enough it went too far with certain people that's always a thing but at least the conversations were being had in south africa here we can't even have conversations about slavery without people being like yeah but those are my ancestors and it's like okay still it happened like let's not make sort of you know excuses like yes those are your ancestors but like the statues are still sitting here so we actually have to discuss it in the u.s it's like we're pretending there's this like lake in the middle there's poison in the lake and we just like keep walking around it and pretending that it's like not seeping into the ground and i don't know when people here are going to be willing to actually like discuss these things this year has clearly taken us steps ahead but my mom said when she was a professor in the early 90s here she asked her students what they wanted to learn and she said that they had asked her to teach them about slavery they asked a south african woman who had come to the u.s to teach them 18 plus year olds about slavery in their country like why had that not been taught to them before the age of 18 um i think that's so embarrassing of us like why don't we discuss things no, and that's a question that I want to ask you a little bit further down, seeing as the election was so tight and a lot of people did not expect how tight it was going to be. I think that definitely goes to show the amount of work that needs to be done. But I was listening to, like you said, I was trying to do my research. Your mom was on a podcast with you and you guys were talking about allyship, right? Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of people I've seen, especially with social media, there is a lot of performative allyship. Yep. And what your mom said that really stood out to me was she said, instead of being an ally, you can find more influence on joining the struggle. And that was a really wow moment for me because I think a lot of people think that, oh, you know, putting up a Instagram story saying, oh, I acknowledge this or this is unjust or I donated to this cause fixes the problem. And I think it's such it's such a such a problem, especially in the digital age that we live in, is it's so easy mm-hmm. to be passive about stuff. So based on your mom's um, thinking, what do you think needs to be done to sort of reevaluate allyship in general? Because I know you've had a lot of changes in your friendships and a lot of your relationships realizing that people weren't necessarily being as involved and supportive as they needed to be. Right. Um... I think, so I hold myself to a high standard and I hold people around me to a high standard, which is why like friendships have fallen because this is where I heard a quote where someone was saying like, if you wondered what you would be doing during the civil rights movement, like this is what you'd be doing. Like this is what we're in right now. We're in another civil rights movement. So if you're not doing shit, you would not have been doing shit back then because this is your time. You have all the ability to do things. You may not have money because people have been you know, laid off of jobs, but speak to your family. I think that until people are uncomfortable, like allyship is just gonna be the thing. It's gonna be the virtue signaling on Instagram, the the black squares, and then like, 
Is your small business, are you hiring people of color? How are you speaking to people of color in public spaces? You know, are you undermining them at work? It's all of these things. It's not just like this one thing that lives on Instagram and Twitter and then you get back to life and you get to like continue to be the way you were. So I think people, you know, I want my friends to be having these conversations when I'm not around. Talking to their partners and to their family members. Grow. Grow with the time and don't return to it because we don't need to be going back. And so I think with the allyship and... I mean, even when she said that on the podcast, I hadn't heard that too. And I was like, girl! <laughs> no, I had a lot you? of moments when I was like, um, can I meet her? Because I'm a big fan. I am a very oh my God. big fan. <laughs> Obviously, I talk about her a lot. But I was like, mom, show it out. I don't need to answer anymore. Um, but like, even when she said that, I was like, yeah, that is right. And then obviously, I spoke to Lisa and I said, yeah, that is like, that's what it should be. I don't need to be the only one banging this bell as a group of 10 friends being the only black one. Like, y'all can do it too. We all have the same brain capacity. At some point, this is going to affect you. And it shouldn't have to affect you to make you want to do something. But if, it, if that's what it takes, then like, okay, I'll see you in 10 years when it affects you and, and your kids and your kids' friends and like, and how, how you like raise the people that you bring into this world like don't you want to teach them to be good and to walk in the world like caring about the other people around them going off of that I would really like to know you know the election was such a tight race what was your mental state during that time and coming out of it also do you think that the country can heal because there is so much work that needs to be done and with Biden now in power while well, going to be in power do you think that that will put us in a good place to begin to heal or do you think that that is not something that we will see in the next four years it may take longer than that well if i'm honest come 2021 ed and i are leaving the u.s and we made that decision before the election because after rbg died and it was like very clear that they were going to put someone in the court i was like this country has at least 20 years before we get to a place where I like think I want to live here like it's just it's just been a year that has like graded on my soul and so I think yes amazing that Biden was elected but like we have so much more time that it's going to take to heal clearly because there were what 55% of white women again that voted for him I think I was shocked but then at the end of the day like not surprised I said in a podcast like, white women will choose their whiteness over their womanness. And, like, here we go. It happened again. I don't know. It was... I've had every emotion. I've had, like, yay, Biden was in. Didn't think that I would cry about it, and I did cry about it. But also, like, Biden is not going to be the, like, one to change the whole system. I don't know if you heard that leaked tape of him with the civil rights leaders. It was embarrassing. No. He... Wait, what, what did... He was speaking to, like, Sherilyn Eiffel of the NAACP, and other people and just you know it's them saying basically our people have elected you into office these are the things that we requested before and this is what we'd like to happen and it goes back to police reform and whatnot and someone recorded it they weren't supposed to and it was leaked and just the way he is speaking to these like people who have like been working for civil rights is embarrassing he's like well i'm not gonna you know 
disown the Constitution. It's like nobody's asking you to do that. They're just actually asking you to like go out on a limb and show that you care for these people who voted you in. Um, and he, he was getting really heated and it was just like, yeah, I was right. Like these four years are not going to be like the four years that like bring us back to where we need to be. We have a long way to go. I made the decision before I was like, win or lose goodbye America. I have not been happy here for a while. And so I need to go. And like, even being able to do that is like a privilege in itself. But also I was like, you know what? I'm a black woman, I'm gonna take whatever privilege I have right now and use it. And that is like leaving the US and doing my activism from afar because um, what's been happening has been like a lot and I just need like a break from it because... And you're allowed that break. I think that's something that especially BIPOC people need to understand mm -hmm. is that you are absolutely allowed that break. Like you cannot always be the voice to make people change or to get educated you know people need to realize that they have to educate themselves like it's not up to everyone to tell them what to do or to say hey like you need to learn more about x y and z and mm -hmm. i think that's the problem is a lot of black women especially they're just exhausted because so much has been put on their shoulders and it's reached a point where you, you know you can't give anymore and so i think it is really amazing of you to say listen i am taking this break because i actually need it like you have to realize when you've reached that limit yeah and that's that's where i am like over 70 million people voted for him and that is a lot like that's as you said your neighbor that's people in your neighborhood that's people that go to your gym and people like eating in the restaurant next to you and that is uncomfortable um because there's like a spectrum of what is okay for them but like at a certain point racism is not a problem so that's a bit uncomfortable when like you cannot change your skin like this this is who I am this is who I'm always gonna be well Mungi thank you for being on Visionaries I think you know this episode has really and I knew it would changed my perspective on a lot of things and I think we all have a lot of work to do but before I close it off are there any exciting and upcoming projects you're working on I know you mentioned you have some really great guests coming up for the podcast can you plug their names in or any other things that you're working on um I'm going to be doing possibly a few like series in different countries so that's not set but I'm planning to spend a lot of time with family in South Africa next year. So hopefully like a lot of good South African guests. And so we'll see. Fingers crossed. That's great. Well, thank you for being on. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. I had so much fun. Well, visionaries, thanks for tuning in to another great episode. Happy New Year, and if you haven't yet, hit that subscribe button. You can also follow my career services platform at TheConnectForward on Instagram, and you can follow me at rwalkonxx. Now, we have an amazing lineup of guests for this new year, from Google execs to your favorite Caribbean singers. So stay tuned for more, and thank you for listening. Thank you.